Well, greetings again. I hope uh, that you enjoyed the intermission, uh, maybe refilled your coffee. Uh, thank you uh, for being very patient with us. Our passage this morning is from John chapter 17, so you can open your Bibles to John chapter 17, please. We're beginning a new series this morning. Now, that may sound a little bit strange. Here we are. Uh, we are not assembled together as we uh, normally are. We are uh, uh, kind of uh, uh, a little off-kilter, as it were. Um, perhaps this is not a great time to begin a new sermon series. And in fact, we've not quite made it through Romans 15. I haven't even touched Romans uh, 16. Why begin a new series? Well, this series is called Life in the Body, and we're going to look at 12 pictures from Scripture that tell us what it's like to be a part of a body. What is it like to be uh, in a church together? And so we'll look at 12 different uh, pictures uh, during the time in which we are uh, disassembled, as it were, as a congregation. We're not actually uh, together. But perhaps as we look at these uh, pictures while we're not together, uh, that might uh, crystallize in our hearts and in our minds of what it is that we miss as a church family. And then we're hoping that as we come together, we'll still be in this uh, same series. And it it may very well be that as we're looking uh, still at pictures of what it means to be a part of a church body, as we're assembled together, perhaps it'll be uh, uh, almost a a light bulb turning on in our heads saying, ah, so this is what I had been missing. And this is what I'm glad to have now. Well, that's the rationale. We're looking at 12 pictures having to do with what the Bible says about the church body. And this morning, we're looking simply at the image of togetherness, togetherness. And at the very end of this sermon, I'll tell you what to expect uh, in the future. But for you little theologians, first of all, I'd like for you to draw a picture for me of a cat farm. I'm not sure if I've ever asked you to draw a picture of a cat farm. It sounds strangely familiar to me, but I don't think I've asked you to draw a cat farm. Obviously, a cat farm is exactly uh, like a, a farm that would have cows uh, or goats. It's just a farm that has, uh, has cats. I don't know what farms do with all of these uh, cats, but I want you to imagine that there is a large farm, and it's just filled with cats, cats as far as you can see, uh, pastures, meadows, uh, filled with cats. Maybe you can try and draw a picture of that. With this one addition, one person is going to walk through that meadow, that pasture, dragging a ball of yarn. What do you think that's going to be like, dragging a ball of yarn on a cat farm? Well, that sounds very, very strange. By the way, if you're not a part of Covenant Presbyterian Church, you uh, perhaps have already begun to think this is a very strange congregation, and now it's just been confirmed. But... Little theologians in our church will understand uh, what I mean during the sermon. So while you're drawing a cat farm, uh, mom and dad should have already been at John chapter 17, verses uh, 20 and 21. And uh, we're going to pray together, and then I'll read those two verses. Let's pray. Father, thank you for making yourself known. We are so very stubborn, and we don't listen very well. But, Father, we ask that by your Spirit, that you would cause our hearts to uh, resonate with a desire to listen to you. Would we be excited to hear what you have to say to us this morning in your word? We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. So our passage again is John chapter 17, beginning at verse 20. God's word says this. 
I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. This is God's word. What I want to say to us this morning is that uh, to be together with God, to be, get, to be together with Jesus, to be together with the Holy Spirit, is actually to be together with others. That's really what I want us to uh, catch from this passage. As we talk about a picture of what it means to be a church body, I want us to uh, think about that word together. But I want to begin uh, with this. We really do like to be alone. Now, that may sound like an unnecessarily cruel thing to say during our current season. We're actually apart from one another. How do you have the gall to say we really do actually like to be alone? Well, uh, let me see if I can't uh, make my argument in a number of ways. First is this. Uh, Other people, you have to admit, can be quite irritating. Uh, In in fact, uh, we ought to understand it's very hard to be a friend with someone. Because people can just be hard to be with. But I need only for us to back, uh, back a little bit off in perspective and understand that we live on a planet that is filled with war and filled with injustice and filled with partiality. And if you can acknowledge that, on some level you have to acknowledge it's very hard for us to uh, live on one planet with other human beings. Other human beings are quite challenging to us. And it could be you think I'm being a bit too cynical, and maybe, maybe you're right. But think about this. Who is it that you believe has the greatest power to injure you, the greatest ability to actually hurt you? Before you answer too quickly that it's someone whom you don't know who uh, comes into your home and hurts you, I want you to consider that it may be that it's your closest friends, your closest allies, those whom you're most intimate with. Those are the ones who actually have the greatest ability to injure you. It's a spouse. It's a child. It's a parent. It's a friend. There's actually a wonderful example of this, if we can use the word wonderful. Uh, There's an example of this in Psalm 55, which which is in fact a prayer. In Psalm 55, uh, David is praying that God would relieve him uh, from the uh, tribulations around him. Adversaries have surrounded him. But it's not just adversaries, it's several uh, others, and one in particular. Psalm 55, verses 12 and 13 say this, For it is not an enemy who taunts me, then I could bear it. It is not an adversary who deals insolently with me. Then I could hide from him. But it is you, a man, my equal, my companion, my familiar friend. You know, there are other psalms that talk this way, acknowledging that it can be very difficult to live with other human beings. All of us, on some level, actually love individualism. It is sometimes by a very large degree, but sometimes it's just a small degree. Sometimes in life, we uh, will be very passionate about our me time, and other times in life, we'll actually be uh, very open to being a part of a community. And so this individualism uh, is with us to a varying uh, number of degrees. 
But love of self actually never goes away. And what does the Holy Spirit uh, tell us in Genesis 2, verse 18? It is not good that man should be alone. Well, many times we actually think it's very good that man is alone. I love being alone. And if I don't have time to be alone, then I'm going to be useless around others. But it's the Holy Spirit that tells us those words of God that were uh, uttered to Adam. It is not good that man should be alone. Now, this passage from Genesis 2.18, it anticipates marriage for sure. It absolutely anticipates marriage. And then God sends to uh, Adam uh, Eve. And God provides for Adam that Adam would not be alone, for after all, it's not good. But Genesis 2.18 doesn't merely prepare for uh, marriage. Uh, Genesis 2.18 prepares for the very presence of God. It's not good for man to be alone because man needs the presence of God. And we uh, understand that the, uh, the very height of that presence, the, the uh, great uh, revelation of that presence is Jesus Christ himself. It's not good that man would be alone. Man needs Jesus. And so this uh, passage in Genesis 2, it prepares for marriage, but it's also preparatory for the presence of God himself in Christ Jesus. But it's also preparatory for something else. It's not good for man to be alone. And so what God has given to man is he's given to man the church a body of fellow believers, that they might be uh, together, together. That man uh, would be united to uh, God through Jesus Christ, but that man would be united also to those others who have been united to God through Jesus Christ. Now, in this regard, I want to say a couple of things. The first is this, is that Jesus is the great unscatterer of people. That's very odd phrasing. I'm sure that it is not grammatically appropriate. But I want you to think about Jesus, first of all, as the great unscatterer of people. And then second of all, I want you to think about a togetherness with God never being a part of or separated from togetherness with others. Togetherness with God actually assumes biblically togetherness with others. Those are the two things that I want to talk about before concluding. So let's begin with Jesus as the great unscatterer of people. This passage this morning is a passage that comes to us as a prayer, a prayer that Jesus makes to God in the presence of his disciples. And Jesus wants to be overheard in this prayer. And as Jesus is about to leave his disciples, this is a prayer that happens likely on Monday Thursday, the day before Jesus will be betrayed. And just before Jesus opens this prayer in John chapter 17, at the very end of John chapter 16, Jesus says this. He says that there is an hour coming, something magnificent, well, badly magnificent, is about to happen. And Jesus says that his disciples will each be scattered to his own home. That's John 16 verse 32. Jesus says, Behold, the hour is coming. Indeed, it has come when you will be scattered each to his own home and will leave me alone. And Jesus uh, also says in Mark's gospel, he says that uh, you, addressing his own disciples, you will all fall away. And at Jesus' betrayal in Mark 14, what happens? As Jesus is betrayed, uh, all of his disciples, they, uh, they leave Jesus. They scatter now, Jesus says at the very end of chapter 16, before this prayer, he says that they can still, even as they scatter, can have encouragement and take peace. 
And the reason why is because Jesus says in John 16.33, he says, In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart. I have overcome the world. Now, scholars debate as to what it means for uh, the disciples to leave Jesus. But most clearly, it has to do with the disciples having weak faith. Uh, Of course, uh, Peter will betray Jesus three times. But really, all of the disciples betray Jesus at some point or another. All of the disciples are frail human beings. All of the disciples have a weak faith. In fact, uh, one uh, scholar, uh, C.H. Dodd, says that the very character and genius of the church is that its founding members are discredited. That's, what, that's, that's part of the character and genius of the very church. Its founding members, they're actually uh, discredited. They're weak. They're frail. It's not their faith, their courage, and their virtue that maintains the church. The scholar goes on to say it's not theirs. It's actually Jesus' faith, Jesus' courage, and Jesus' virtue. That's the genius and the character of the church. Its founding members are sinners. And that genius and character of the church is part of the church today. That we are those sinners. But Jesus, he is the one who is the strength of the church. Now, we could understand Jesus as being in the business of unscattering people. Even though that sounds strange, that's really really part of the business of who Jesus is. He's the great unscatterer of people. The entire world will be brought under the leadership of Jesus in Matthew 25 at the final judgment. Before him will be gathered all the nations. All the nations will be gathered together to stand before Jesus. What about his uh, special gathering, his gathering of just Christians? The Bible says that uh, he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds, from one end of heaven to the other. And not a single Christian will be uh, missed. But, of course, not, not a single human being will miss in this regard. Matthew 25, uh, all of them are gathered together, but Jesus, he separates, and he separates into a group the sheep to his right and the goats to his left. But everyone is gathered. Everyone is accounted for. Uh, Jesus, he is this great unscatterer. Some will be gathered together in salvation. Others will not. But he is the great unscatterer. And this prayer uh, in John chapter 17, this prayer is actually about him. It's about uh, his faith and his courage and his virtue, that he has overcome the world. How then does he overcome the world? Or we could ask it this way. How is he the great unscatterer of the people? Well, we hear this uh, in the prayer. That Jesus unscatters by the power of his cross. Just as he has come from the Father, he will return to the Father. And he returns to the Father through the shame of that cross. This is the very end of aloneness. This is how togetherness with God happens. Jesus, he, he walks willingly, deliberately through that cross that he might gather God's children to himself. The power of aloneness is remarkable. We've actually uh, been uh, brought together with God through the cross, and yet even still, we actually prefer being alone. I'm speaking to you as a Christian. I understand this about myself. Uh, The great glory of salvation is that uh, I uh, am with God, that God has reconciled himself to me by taking all of the punishment that I deserve and pouring pouring that out upon my Lord and Savior. And because God has done this, and because Jesus has done this, 
And because the Holy Spirit has applied this reality to my life in God's great grace, I'm not alone. I'm with God. And at the same time, even though it's a consideration of God and not just others, I still actually like to be alone. And I know that you do, too, even though you profess faith in Jesus Christ. Don't we know that as Christians, we understand very well the feeling of uh, needing me time, time away from other people. But what, what do you think disobedience before God actually is? Disobedience before God is this. It's preferring to do that which is pleasing to me rather than that which is pleasing to God. That sounds familiar, doesn't it? Wanting to please self rather than God. But what is that if it isn't uh, looking for me time away from God? The cross of Jesus Christ has united me to my heavenly Father. And yet even still I desire to be alone. It doesn't the Bible say that love for Christ should control us, that we ought not uh, live our lives for ourselves, but we are to live our lives for Jesus Christ. That our passions ought not reign over us, but Christ himself reigns over us. Why do you think the Holy Spirit says that to us? Well, because we crave being alone, even if being alone means being separated from God. He loves me and has brought me into a relationship with himself through a great price. And even still, even still, I'm very tempted to be alone. Well, Jesus, he is the great unscatterer. He's come near to us and he's brought us near to God. We sometimes want to present ourselves uh, to ourselves, uh, uh, present ourselves to whatever it is I uh, wish for at the time. We, uh, we want that which is pleasing to ourselves, not pleasing to God. In short, we, we really want to be left alone. But Jesus didn't please himself, Romans 15.3. Jesus set self aside, Philippians 2.7. Because Jesus understood it's not good for a man to be alone. And Jesus understood it's not good for a man to be alone... But he wasn't taking care of just himself. He's taking care of all of those who had placed their trust in him. And so he brings us to God because he knows about us that it's not good that we be alone. But the desire to be alone is very, very powerful. And we struggle with that even uh, as Christians. But here's here's the point. Togetherness with God is togetherness with others. To to be together with God means that we are together with others. The disciples, Jesus says in verse 20, uh, are to preach and to live out the gospel. In verse 20, Jesus prays. He says, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe believe in me through their word. And so the disciples are are called. They're going to be uh, in the Great Commission uh, later in his glorified body. Uh, Jesus will articulate this more clearly, but the disciples are called to preach the gospel. And the word that is mentioned in verse 20 is probably uh, actually uh, uh, outlined in verse 21. Uh, The word that they're to preach has something to do with the fact that the Father is in the Son and that the Son is in the Father. The divinity of Jesus, but also the counsel of God, the plan of God to save. One commentator puts it this way. He says that the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, if we take into account John 15, 26, the Father and the Son they, they, uh, and the Holy Spirit, they share a purpose, a love, and an action. I'm going to say that again uh, later on. 
The father and the son, they have this purpose and this love and this action which they share. They, they actually don't work alone, but they work together for the salvation of God's children. The father sends the son, and the son uh, faithfully uh, obeys the father, satisfying all of his demands. And the Holy Spirit then uh, applies that saving work to the children of God. And what I want us to hear in this is that not even Jesus is alone. We know this. Sometimes it's still striking just to hear. It's not good for man to be alone, but not even Jesus is alone. Is alone. And this is what's to be preached by the disciples, but it's also to be lived out. Verse 21 says uh, that uh, they may all be one. The disciples are one. They're together. They're united to Jesus, they, having been unscattered by him. And, and these disciples, these uh, 11 men, Judas Iscariot has already uh, left, uh, these uh, 11 disciples, uh, having been unscattered by Jesus, uh, they share a purpose to glorify Jesus. Uh, they uh, share a love to love God and to love each other. And they share an action to, to make that salvation known. And so the disciples, they're, they're, they're not merely uh, preaching a word. They're actually uh, living that word. And, and the disciples would understand this. Uh, let me say something that's very, very obvious. The, the disciples, uh, they've spent three years with Jesus, haven't they? They've spent a great deal of time with Jesus, but they've also spent time with one another. And so here these uh, men are. Uh, they have been uh, converted, and they're being sanctified uh, with Jesus, but also sanctified with one another. But they've also developed a rich chemistry together as these disciples uh, they, they are uh, sharing in their relationships uh, with one another. Their, their families are getting to know one another. Some members of their families are actually traveling uh, with them. Uh, eleven men and their families. And these eleven men, uh, they're getting to know each other, their strengths and their weaknesses. Uh, they're hearing uh, the stories of one another. Uh, imagine just three years of just un- 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 uninterrupted time being with one another. And, and so uh, they're hearing one another's stories, but they're also they're learning how to tolerate one another's uh, differences, the differences in uh, personality. We're, we're given some of these personalities in Scripture. Wouldn't you like to know more? If you're a Christian, you will. You'll meet these men. But these men, they're actually uh, they're, they're, uh, tolerating one another's differences in personality and temperament tolerating one another's differences with regards to certain opinions on matters, maybe politics, maybe marriage or parenting, uh, business ownership or personal habits. There's certainly uh, the occasional disagreement among these 11 men. And certainly there is time in which they need to be apart from each other. And the Bible doesn't tell us that. Uh, I'm speculating. But they have a happy balance, these 11 disciples and Jesus, united in purpose and in love and in action. They've been brought together and they preach the word, but they also live that word before others. This togetherness, however, is going to expand. If you look at verse 20 again, you'll see what I mean. Jesus prays, I do not ask for these only. That is the disciples. I do not ask for these only, just the disciples, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. Well, who do you think those who believe in me is a reference to? And then look at verse 21. 
They preach that they, may, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they, may, uh, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The kind of life that they live, these 11 disciples with Jesus, is the kind of life that actually expands such that they're living before a world so that other people in the world would be brought into that relationship as well. Well, here's the point. The point is, is, that, is that Jesus is saying to his disciples by a pr- in a prayer to God that there will be others. And that's you. And, and that's me. The others that are added to the number of the disciples. New people will be added. And then, so here is my uh, cynicism from at the beginning of this sermon. That great uh, chemistry of the disciples, that balance that they had achieved, living with one another, uh, enjoying one another's company, accounting for one another's uh, weaknesses or oddities, uh, whatever it might be, that chemistry of the disciples is actually, well, it's actually over. Here's what I mean. It's over because more people are going to be added. In fact, less than two months from this prayer, Peter is going to preach in Jerusalem. You know when that happens, it's Acts chapter 2. And, and you know what happens when Peter preaches in Jerusalem. Peter preaches in Jerusalem and 3,000 people become believers and are baptized. So 3,000 people are made together with God through Jesus Christ. But 3,000 people are also made together with the disciples. We can only imagine uh, that that uh, delicate chemistry that the disciples had achieved is going to be, uh, well, it's going to be challenged. Many people are added. People from Persia and Asia and Egypt and Arabia and Libya and Rome. That's the audience of Acts chapter 2. Many people like that are actually added to the number of the disciples. And in fact, uh, these, these individuals who become followers of Jesus Christ and are uh, gathered together in this great togetherness of the work of the gospel, uh, these individuals are from places that the disciples have never been to before. I think how provincial these disciples are. And yet here, people from all over the world, they're actually gathered into the life of the church through Jesus Christ. If they thought that they were preaching the gospel simply in obedience to Jesus, they were wrong. The preaching of the gospel is Jesus' means of gathering people to himself. It's that, it's that a person with a ball of yarn walking through the cat farm. I told you I'd come back to that illustration, didn't I? Well, maybe that doesn't help you at all. But Jesus has in mind the church being large and, and frustrating that, uh, that desire to be alone. It's not good for you to be alone, nor is it good for me to be alone. And praise God that the way the gospel works is it draws people to God through Christ Jesus, but it draws people together with one another. This, we need to understand, is the will and the desire of Jesus that the church would multiply yeah, think of that promise in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, the promise that the gospel will extend to the end of the earth and how beautiful and lovely that is. But let's keep in mind that it actually unites us with people who may as well be from different worlds than our own. But that's how the gospel works. Well, that promise of Acts chapter 1 is not merely a New Testament promise. It's an Old Testament promise. The Bible also says this. In Acts chapter 1, verse 8, the Bible says that the gospel will extend to the end of the earth. 
But another passage in Scripture says this, I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. That's in Isaiah 49, verse 6. It's not a New Testament promise. It's an Old Testament promise. This is God's will that he would draw people to himself, but he would do so by drawing them to the cross and then to one another. Now, this is wonderful. This is glorious. It's beautiful. There is a sense in which it's not so wonderful, but let me save that. It's wonderful because the Bible talks to us uh, not merely as individuals, but as a corporate whole. Uh, the very word for the church in the Bible, ecclesia, it occurs over a hundred times, and it refers to a people who have been uh, called out from one assembly and gathered into another assembly. You can actually hear echoes of that in Matthew 25. Jesus is the great gatherer of the nations and then separating those nations into two gathered wholes. That's what the word church means. The church means that we're gathered together. The same is true in the Hebrew word kahal. It's the same thing. It's the people that are called out, called from, that they might be called to, called together. And you've uh, surely heard this before, but the, but the word uh, you in the Bible, it almost always refers not to individuals, you as a person, but uh, you as a corporate body. It's a plural you. This is how the Bible, this is how Jesus understands us as a gathered together people. Now, I want to be very clear before uh, I move on to some difficult applications. I want us all to understand that personal salvation is critical. You must yourself take responsibility for what you believe about Jesus. You must deal with this God-man. And uh, for a, a Christian, Jesus knows, he knows who you are as an individual. Jesus doesn't just see you as uh, one of the, the tones of the corporate body. Jesus sees you as an individual. He knows you by name. He calls his own sheep by name, John 10, 3. Uh, individual names are uh, actually written in the Lamb's book of life. He understands us as individuals. You have to hear that. However, the shepherd, as he cares for his sheep, he cares for his sheep together. Uh, John chapter 10 is a great passage in which we uh, are, are told about the many things that our good shepherd does for us. He lays down his life for us. He knows us. And he also has other sheep. But when you look at John chapter 10, when he's referring to sheep, he's not referring to just you. He's referring to his body, the church, the gathered ones. He's referring to a sheep in the plural. Now, the Bible, of course, uh, addresses us sometimes as a subset, as husbands or as wives, as single people, children, young, old, parents, elders, deacons, teachers, widows. Sometimes that happens in Scripture. But even these addresses are as a collective, a collective of husbands and of wives and of single people and so on and so forth. The Bible talks more about us as a corporate body than it does as individuals. Now, this is wonderful, this is beautiful, but it's also, it's also a bit challenging because we know that living with others is difficult. Ask husbands and wives. Ask roommates, ask anyone who uh, has grown up in a home, which is all of us. We've grown up with others somehow, and it's difficult. But so much of Scripture addresses us as a corporate body, but also so much in Scripture addresses us with regards to peace and purity and unity 
of that body. Sanctification is not merely about you and your walk in holiness, although it is about that. Sanctification is about our walk together as a church body, our togetherness having been united to Christ Jesus and united to one another. Much of our lives is uh, not uh, uh, avoiding us. Much of our lives needs to be about working together, willing to try to love one another more and more, learning to respect one another, but also learning how to confess our sin and to say sorry for one another. Sanctification is a plural reality. I want to offer three reminders as I close. I want to say a couple things about the sermon series. The first is this, that that the medicine for our aloneness is not simply to be with Jesus. We're never saved in our isolated little world. You're saved with others. Listen to Revelation 7, 9 that says that a great multitude from every nation and from all tribes and peoples and languages stand before the throne of Jesus. That's what we're meant for. Our aloneness is not simply to just be with Jesus. Aloneness is not good. And Jesus is the great defeater of our aloneness who unites us to himself. But he never does this without uniting us to one another. So the medicine for our aloneness is not just to go away and be alone with Jesus. The second is this. Your life is not just about you and Jesus taking on the world. Not even Jesus himself is alone. It's you united to Jesus along with other believers living together for the same purpose with the same love and the same action. And all of this is hard to do. All of this is painful because I didn't necessarily pick these people. They just showed up in my church one day and they're not going away. Well, in a situation like that, We actually have a wonderful picture of how hard it is to be together with others, but also how much we need Jesus. He is the one who has overcome the world. And this is fitting to him that he would draw us together and make us uncomfortable. But I want to finish with this. A promise of this passage is that, well, we actually are enabled to do this. As difficult as it might sound to gather together as a people and to be unified in purpose, love, and action, well, the Bible speaks about this reality as if it actually can happen. A promise of this passage is that we can live together in common purpose, love, and action. And as we do so, John chapter 13 and John chapter 14 show that the world will actually be enticed by the new community that we are a part of. Everyone acknowledges that it's hard to live in community. But the church has a wonderful opportunity to envision before the watching world the kind of community that has been promised to us in our Heavenly Father, the kind of community that has uh, been uh, motivated and that has been substantiated by our Heavenly Father, the kind of community that can really be salt to the world and the kind of community that can really be light to the world. So often we think about being salt and light as individual endeavors. But I'd like for us as a church, particularly Covenant Presbyterian Church, to be the kind of church that understands that our uh, purity and peace and our unity together uh, are being united with the same purpose and love and action. That is itself a proclamation of the gospel in the word of God. That in and of itself is salt and light to the world. The togetherness of the church.
Well, what we're going to do over this sermon series is we're going to explore various pictures of the church. And so uh, togetherness this morning, but next week um, I'll be preaching uh, on uh, the imagery of a house or a household or a family. And we'll be looking at Ephesians chapter 2. But there's several other images of the church that we want to talk about. The universality of the church. The eternality of the church. And we want to talk about um, the church as a, as a place of safety. Uh, the church as a place of uh, encouragement and being built up. Uh, the church as being beautiful. And these are just some of the things that we want to talk about uh, over uh, the next few weeks. Life in the body is our study. Well, let me close us in prayer and we'll continue. Our Father in heaven, we ask that you would make these uh, realities that you have designed for your people to be realities that are particularly shown at Covenant Presbyterian Church. We pray, Heavenly Father, that we would embrace the fact that you have made us together with not only Jesus, but with one another. And that our brothers and our sisters, they matter to us. We pray, Father, uh, that you would help us against, uh, fight against our own selfishness. That this new community, in its loveliness, in its beauty, in its divine sanction, that that would be what people see when they look at our church. We thank you, Heavenly Father, for saving us in Jesus Christ and for drawing us together with other believers of his. We thank you in his name. Amen.